You know what's happening here with Moses and Joshua, don't you? The word is transition. The transition is happening. Can anybody think of any parallels here in our church today, perhaps, that would align with the theme of transition? Okay. Pat, Tequila. Can anybody think of any parallels in our country at this time of transition? Um, yes. Here's the front page of the Trib on Friday. A transition begins. A meeting in the Oval Office, encouraging. It was a normalizing meeting. Um, it was reported that they had set a short amount of time, but they actually met longer than that. Both report that it had gone well, and some of us sort of heaved a sigh of relief that that went well. But I'm not so sure when you look at their faces up close. Look at this. <laughs> I don't think either of them look too sure about this. But anyway, it's just, uh, that's the photograph that the Tribune picked. You know, no matter who you voted for or if you voted at all, I know some just could not. Whether you voted enthusiastically for a candidate or, as many, reluctantly for a candidate. No matter how surprised you were at the outcome, whether your surprise was a pleasant surprise or a horrified surprise, we all can agree agree that it's been a rugged and a dirty campaign season. And Tuesday night and Wednesday morning gave us an angst-filled, emotional roller coaster ride. Good grief between the Cubs and the election. Who's getting a lot of sleep this week, right, these last couple of weeks? I know some of you have welcomed this surprise election, and I know some of you are discouraged. Some are even depressed. And not necessarily over Trump's victory, but rather over the deep divides and tensions that this all exposes in our country. We've seen it through the campaign, and that weighs heavy on some of us. It weighs heavy on me. I worry for our nation now. That's what I've been carrying this week. And even the vast differences that I know exist right here in this congregation uh, weigh heavily on me. And um, I think um, some people I know, um, well, yeah, that just weighs heavily on me when, when there's tension, when there's disagreement, and I know that. Some people I know are actually afraid. We actually have a couple family members who are people of color, and they're frightened. They're identifying with those who feel marginalized, marginalized and overlooked. It touches those places where we've spoken of some here, of some of the racial tensions that we deal with, and those have notched up as well during this campaign season. And so some people I know are, in what we call in a biblical sense, lamenting. Uh, we want to tie everything up in a nice, easy bow and say, Jesus is still king, everything's going to be fine. Which is true, Jesus is still king and everything's going to be fine, but sometimes we need to stop and, and feel sometimes the discomfort or the tension we feel. Again, no matter who we voted for or how we feel about the outcome, you have to agree it's been difficult for our country. We have to acknowledge that all of this is, is here. And we need to be careful not to, I think this is the main thing, to be careful not to make judgments about our sisters or brothers who voted differently than we did. You cannot say, how could a Christian ever vote for blank? Because Christians voted for both of these people and had reasons to do so. There are certain things when we voted that we had to just overlook in favor of some other things that we were supporting. I read a great blog post this week. I won't read the whole thing. I can send you out the link this week. But uh, this, uh, it's a seminary student, actually, from Asbury who wrote this and said, um, to, those who voted, to Christians who voted for Clinton... First of all, stop exaggerating the narrative. Not all Trump supporters are racist, xenophobic, Islamophobic, homophobic, white supremacists wanting to repeal the civil rights movement. 
In fact, the vast majority are simply faithful Republicans with different political ideology who believe in small government and conservative economics and are just tired of big government overreach and political insider collusion. Understand the differences and don't breathe hate. Then he says, ask why of those who voted differently and listen. And then thirdly, be the church. Christ is Lord, not Caesar, not Obama, not Trump. To Christians who voted for Trump, Trump, number one, stop vilifying liberals. Not all who voted for Hillary Clinton are politically corrupt, morally debunked, socialist, welfare-abusing, fear-mongering liberals wanting to live off the hard work of others. In fact, the vast majority of Democrats simply believe in empowering the greater government influence to regulate businesses and institutions and to protect a pluralistic culture's freedoms. Understand your differences. Don't breed hate. Try to understand the fear. Don't blow it off. If it's a real emotion, it's a real emotion. And listen. Groups of people are feeling afraid. Ask why and listen. And the third point here is the same thing. Be the church. Christ is Lord. There's more here, but I just think we need to keep these things in perspective. Not just paint a rosy picture, everything's going to be fine, but realize that there is tension here. But let's be careful in our judgment of one another. We have a new president, whether you like it or not. Our presidential leadership is in transition. Obama is cooperating. Democracy is actually working, and we need to pray. Scripture calls us to pray for our leaders. And remember when Paul said to do that, Nero was leader in Rome and killing Christians. So we don't just pray for the leaders we agree with. We should pray more for the leaders we don't agree with, right? So we pray during this transition. I couldn't miss the timing of all this, this transitions that we're experiencing right here in our church staff, the transitions in our country. And as we conclude our reading of the Pentateuch, which is the name we give to the first five books of the Old Testament, we find the children of Israel in for a big and potentially frightening conclusion, uh, transition themselves. Moses has been in leadership for over 40 years. Pat was only the secretary for 25 years. <laughs> Moses has been in leadership for 40 years and is handing leadership off to Joshua. And the people, and with that, the people are about to enter the promised land, which is this land flowing with milk and honey, but they also know it's flowing with all kinds of mean people that might hurt them. It's a frightening transition. And they are afraid and they have great uncertainty. But Moses in his model and Joshua as he picks it up, they model a confidence in God's plan and they model a confidence in God's power. And we see them standing up to fear. We perhaps can learn something in the midst of our own transitions as they stand up to the fear and move forward with the plan of God. And so this is what I want to look at this morning, that in these final pages of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, Moses is guiding the children of Israel in this transition to Joshua's leadership and the move into the promised land. Their, meaning Moses and Joshua, not the children of Israel, (laughs) their unswerving confidence in the power and presence of God in the face of fear and uncertainty speaks to us in our own transitions. So before we actually look at Moses and Joshua, I just want to talk a little bit about transition and change and what that can mean for us. Secondly, we'll look at Moses and Joshua and what we read here in this section. And finally, we'll reflect a little bit just on uh, the reality of faith and fear kind of working together as we move forward in our own transitions. We all, we all know that change is one of the things that we can count on, right? All you have to do is live for a while and you know that things change. And while Scripture affirms in Hebrews 13.8 that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, you live enough life and you go, that's about the only thing that I can count on being the same yesterday, today, and forever. Countless books and studies are done on how to lead change, how to manage change. 
a classic for several years. In fact, it's still in print. Uh, is the book entitled Transitions. The subtitle is Making Sense of Life's Changes by William Bridges. It's still a classic used in the public sector, the private sector, and uh, even in the world of, of church leadership. We, we, we use this book because of the insights that are there. In this book, Bridges says that change and transition are not the same thing, actually. Not quite the same thing. And he says this. Here's just a short quote. He says, it isn't the changes that do you in. It's the transitions. Change is not the same as transition. Change is situational. The new site, the new boss, the new team roles, the new policy. Transition is the psychological process people go through to come to terms with the new situation. Change is external. Transition is internal. Now, we can use the words interchangeably, but he uses them to say there's two, more than one thing going on here. Think about it. Okay, there was a campaign. There was an election day. There was a winner. There's assembling of cabinet advisors. There will be an inauguration. Change. Done, right? But the transition we all go through as Americans near and far is much more involved. Every time there's a change in leadership in Washington, and probably this time more than ever. The change will happen. Those changes will happen in Washington. But the changes that go on internally in us and in other leaders are another story. The children of Israel, they cross the Red Sea, they wander 40 years, Moses hands off to Joshua, into the land, conquer it, changes, done. (laughs) But inside is fear and doubt and uncertainty. Even a longing for the old and the familiar slavery. Remember we landed on that a couple weeks ago. Oh, if we could only go back to Egypt instead of the promised land. Egypt where we were slaves. But it was familiar. We even talked uncomfortably about the familiarity of bad habits and even addictions. That's hard to push out of towards the promised land of change and of hope and of a new day. Transition involves all that we have to do to move to acceptance of the new. And Bridges suggests that means that we have to acknowledge both the endings and the beginnings that happen in the transition. We often just look at the beginning. We're moving to something new, but also something is ending. Today with Pat, we celebrate an, an, an ending, and, and, and there's a joy to it, but there's a sadness to it. Uh, her tears are both joy and uh, absolute joy that she doesn't have to show up here every morning. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's a sadness. She's leaving something behind. Transitions need to start with an ending, which in some ways may seem paradoxical, but think about it. You get a new job. You buy a new house. You have a new baby. All of those are exciting things, but you have to acknowledge in each of those things the things that are ending, what is left behind. A new job is exciting, but you're leaving colleagues and familiarity behind. You're leaving the sense of competence in an old job. I knew how to do that old job. The new job presents a lot of challenges, so the, 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 the familiarity is ending. With a new house, it's the, the lack of familiarity and the new things that have to be done. And with a new baby, you're putting an end to sleep, basically, right? <laughs> and the independence and things that go with it. You're thrilled to have a baby, but there's an ending before the beginning. Even the good changes involve a letting go, and then there's a moving on to the new beginning. Bridge actually says that there's a middle place called the neutral zone, uh, but I'm not going to get into that now because I'm doing a sermon, not a book report. Buy the book, read it. It's very helpful if you're in kind of a transition. The point is the good changes involve a letting go, but the big, frightening, and painful ones that require that as well to acknowledge that something is ending in order to move to the new beginning. And in Moses and Joshua's case, there is a fear and an uncertainty in the new. And the ending they must go through really is huge. Moses will no longer be their leader. 
Moses was not just a great leader. Moses was God's main man. For several centuries, he was the the key person, really, until Jesus himself came. He was just a man, but he was the key pin to this whole thing happening. And he will cease being their leader when he hands off to Joshua and Moses dies. They're not doing the transition because Moses is going to die. He dies because the transition will have been complete. Moses says, I'm not the one to do this anymore. Not because I'm a mere 120 years old. How about that? 90. Big deal, right? (laughs) Moses is dying. They have a huge ending that's happening here of their time of wandering and the, the discomfort and yet the familiarity of that wandering in the wilderness and the familiarity and the security of having Moses giving leadership. Joshua's a great guy, but he's kind of young. Does he have enough experience? Those kind of things were there. Let's talk about Moses and Joshua then a little bit as we've looked at transition and change. Moses is a great source of inspiration for studies and leadership. Uh, One of my favorite books by author Ruth Haley Barton, we've mentioned her books in here before, but one of my favorites is Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership, and the subtitle is Seeking God in the Crucible of Ministry. And what uh, Haley Barton does in this book is she weaves all kinds of leadership connections and how we care for ourselves as leaders in and through the story of Moses. Moses is her key character in each chapter, and I love the way she does that. He's an inspiration for studies in leadership and living in leadership. And the qualities of life, of, of his life, and the qualities of Joshua's life can be found in secular studies as well. One of the original and great writers on leadership in the last several decades is Warren Bennis. Some of you that have done any, any kind of study in, in leadership know the name Warren Bennis. And he points to some lessons in leadership that, that really overlap so clearly with the person of, of Moses. Bennis, in his study of outstanding leaders, came up with five common strengths. He said, the first common strength is, is vision. Vision is the capacity to create a compelling vision of a preferred future, of being able to paint a picture of what can be as we move forward. The second quality is communication, the ability to communicate that vision and also then to gain the support of others, not to just talk about it, but draw in the support of others. The third quality of leadership is persistence, the capacity to maintain an organization's direction even when the going gets tough, especially when the going gets rough. Persistence in a leader. The fourth one is empowerment, the capacity to harness the strengths and energies and abilities of others to get the best results of not going it alone as a leader, but empowering those around the leader to move forward too. And then fifthly, organizational learning, the ability to, to, to kind of keep track of what's going on, to monitor performance, learn from past action, learn from mistakes, uh, and kind of make a plan for moving forward is what that one means. Think about it, really. Moses was competent in all those, wasn't he? He, he didn't write a leadership book. Well, kind of. He wrote part of the Bible. But um, Moses was competent in all these things. And as he lays down his role and authority here at the end of Deuteronomy, he exhibits really that fourth one, empowerment. Empowerment to the people in verses 3 through 6 where he t- tells all the people of Israel to be strong and courageous and follow God and he will be with them. And then specifically to Joshua in verses 7 through 8. He says the Lord will be with you and he also says the Lord will go before you. (laughs) Did you get that? Both. With you and before you. Moses has cast the vision. He has communicated clearly with the people. He has persisted through the incredible pains and difficulties, disobedience, and twists and turns of the wandering in the wilderness. He's empowered especially Joshua and other leaders around him, and he's motivated them uh, so that they're organized and ready to move on. 
And now, not only for these external changes, but for the internal work of transition, he instills in them confidence and courage. And if we take Bridges things of transition and change being different, this is where the transition is impacted the most, of this confidence and courage that he gives to the people. Let me read again what he says. First to the children of Israel, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Those are inside things, aren't they? They're not just the external changes of a plan to get into the land. And then to Joshua, he says, Be strong and courageous, for you must go with this people into the land that the Lord swore to their ancestors to give them. And you must divide it among them as their inheritance. The Lord himself goes before you and will be with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. The Lord goes with you. The Lord goes before you. We're not just kind words of encouragement. Lord be with you. God bless you. Sometimes we say, oh, bless her when she's a mess, right? <laughs> oh, God bless her. This is not just a kind word. This is not, Moses didn't say this so that generations later people could put this on refrigerator magnets. <laughs> the Lord, the living Lord that has guided you through the wilderness, the living Lord who has shown up in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, the living Lord who has gotten pretty upset with you in some of the sins of rebellion that you've committed in the wilderness and yet the lord who has forgiven and continues to keep open the path to the promised land that lord will go with you the lord who has made a covenant with us if we follow and obey he will bless and be blessed and blessed through us god has been with them and will continue to be with them the lord goes with you the lord goes before you joshua now has the job And Joshua now has the skills. He's been trained as a leader these many years. He and Caleb are the only two that get to enter the promised land who left Egypt. The only ones. Because of his faith and his courage and confidence and his trust in God. But his deep inner courage and confidence to manage this transition will ultimately only come from God. And only that can give substance to don't be afraid. (laughs) to know deep inside that God is leading. And so the transition moves on. I just want to make a few comments about what this says in terms of our own day and time and faith and fear and then and now. The transition in our own country, we we need to recognize um, hope and prayer, but we need to recognize some of the fear that's here as this is such a huge change and transition for our country. As followers of Christ, we need to pray, as I said, in the midst of it, but we also need to find those places to rise above it, to be confident that our nation has not been destroyed in these 200-plus years. I shared this this morning with a Sunday school class, but my sister is uh, uh, 71, and um, we all remember well, but she especially was in high school at the time of the 1960 election. And for those that weren't alive then, that was Kennedy and, and Nixon. It was a very, very close election. And my sister came into the kitchen the next morning before going to school and found my mother in tears. And um, my parents were very active in Republican politics in California at the time. And uh, I can remember being a little eight-year-old campaigner for Nixon and whatever. We can talk about that later. But anyway, um, that was before Nixon was really Nixon. But anyway, um, um, 
My mom was in tears. My sister said, what's wrong? And my mom was in tears because Kennedy had won and our democracy was going to be destroyed. <laughs> it wasn't. We're, we're going to be okay. Uh, it's going to take some work, take some involvement. We need to trust the system, but we need to listen to each other and we need to pray for our leaders. I think things could get bad either way. If either person, if Hillary had won either, I think some things are going to get tougher in our nation for things to happen and move forward. There will be some unpopular decisions made. And, and as Christians, we need to pray for that, but I think we still need to leave a little corner open sometimes for some conscientious resistance or perhaps even peaceful protest if, if you feel strongly about that, that God's leading. But for now, we acknowledge some of the concerns, the fears, but we don't become crippled by them. We're strong and we're courageous because inside of us is a trust and a belief that God is with us and God goes before us. In our church, we're headed into transitions, not only the transition in our office, obviously, but we're experiencing several kind of demographic and financial transitions here too, which is another way of saying we've lost some people and we've lost some money. But we're gaining some people and we're gaining some energy too. And so we're, we're in this season of, of transition as a church. And so it's imperative then that we, that we work together and we solve some of these problems and we listen to each other here as well. We did that at a congregational meeting two weeks ago. We gathered around tables and we compiled a lot of information. The executive board is going to process a lot of that tomorrow night. And then a week from today, we'll be in a four-hour special session of looking at the information, praying about next steps in terms of stewardship. To listen. We are creative people, resourceful people, but we also have this inner resource of confidence and courage in God. So we're not afraid. We're not afraid of what might happen to our church. It's going to be different, but we can do this. As God goes within us and God goes before us. I think another area also of of faith and fear for us as a congregation and in our nation is the area of racial reconciliation as well. It's being addressed in the country and I think we as followers of Christ need to ask what does the gospel call us to as well? I think it calls us to listen. It calls us to find our our, our answers in in the heart of the gospel of a God who has called all people, of a vision that is painted of, of heaven, of people of all races, tribes, and nations together worshiping. We want to be kind of a picture of heaven as we worship together. We rejoice in our own congregation that we have had, had a gradual increase in our own ethnic diversity, not big, but enough that we've taken note and said, we, 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 we can be happy about this, but maybe we need to learn some things about it too. That we are not just simply a a white suburban church that has been a comfortable place for certain people of color to come worship, but rather say we're becoming more diverse. We're becoming multicultural. What are are the joys and the advantages of that? What can we learn from each other? How can we be an example of, of, of worshiping together and impacting the kingdom together rather than being afraid? But some of it's fearful. Some of us are afraid we might hurt somebody or afraid that we might have to feel guilty about something. But we can do this. We can do this as we have that internal sense of making the transition with a fearlessness and a courage and a, and a commitment to be people of the book and people of the gospel. And finally, it comes back to Jesus, doesn't it? The answer is Jesus. My first sermon I preached here seven years ago, and the answer was Jesus. I don't know if it, who was here then, but um, in fact, this is my, and I think I, my, first sermon, my first Sunday was November 15th, seven years ago, so, um, so I kind of have an anniversary too. But anyway, I'm not looking for any surprises, any prizes or anything. Um, but we kid about Jesus being the answer, but he is. And we've even seen that in our study, haven't we, through the five books of the Old Testament, the first five books of the Old Testament. We've been finding Jesus in every different corner as we've looked. We've seen him foreshadowed in the sacrifice of Isaac and, and, and all the way back when we started. 
We saw him in and through the person of Joseph as Joseph kind of redeemed his brothers and saved his children, saved the children of Israel in Egypt. We saw Jesus in that, saw him foreshadowed in the type of Christ there. We obviously saw Christ in the Lamb of Passover and in the Exodus, the key story of the Old Testament, a freedom that prefigures and looks forward to Jesus. We saw Jesus in all of these bloody, messy sacrifices in those 40 years as they set up the tabernacle. Because we saw that someday, someday there would be the Lamb of God whose blood would be shed once and for all. And the sacrifices would end. We've seen Jesus everywhere. We saw him with Moses on the mountain looking forward to not only this covenant with God, but a new covenant that would be in the hearts and the minds of people. We even saw Jesus as we struggled through the pages of Leviticus and looked at this blood sacrifice trying to answer the question of why did Jesus have to die? And all of this was looking forward to his reign, to his grace, to his forgiveness. All of this was looking forward to his power to change lives and give hope. All of this was looking forward to his power to instill a confidence where we could move forward in lives in this crazy world that we live in with a confidence that God is in control. Jesus is the only hope for our lives. Jesus is the only hope for our church. The church really is the hope of the world as you live into it. And so we need to move forward, whatever the transition, whatever level we're talking about, as followers of Jesus Christ. I like that word better than Christian. Right now I like it a lot better than evangelical. (laughs) I like my my definition of evangelical. But it's become a confusing one. But how about we be followers of Jesus? Because that says more than just, I believe. That says I'm going somewhere and trusting him. Let's be followers of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we love this word. These books of the Old Testament, though, there's some crazy stuff in there that's confused us and confounded us. And we thank you, Lord, that as we've pushed on through and we've read the pages and we've looked deeply, we see you so much at work. And we see you, Jesus. So help us, Lord, in this time of transition in our church and particularly in our nation to look to you and to find the unswerving confidence of your presence and the reality that you go with us and you go before us. And we will not be afraid. Amen.